Beloved congregation, would you turn with me again to um, the Heidelberg Catechism as it's found in the back of your Psalters on page 62. We'll read the first portion of Lord's Day 30. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? Answer. The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have a full pardon of all sins by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself has once accomplished on the cross, and that we, by the Holy Ghost, are engrafted into Christ, who, according to his human nature, is now not on earth, but in heaven, at the right hand of God his Father, and will there be worshipped by us. But the Mass teaches the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for us by the priests and further, that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine and therefore is to be worshipped in them. So that the mass at bottom is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Last time in our series on the doctrines of the Heidelberg Catechism, we examined these words from the Catechism that especially highlighted the terrible abomination of the Roman Catholic Mass. And if you're there for that sermon, you recall that this is not something that our fathers dreamed up or said in the heat of the moment, but based on the clear teaching of Scripture and Contrasting that with the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, they concluded on solid grounds through sober reasoning that in representing the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ in the Mass as a propitiatory sacrifice, they denied the gospel of salvation once for all through the one offering of Christ. Moreover, in teaching the doctrine of transubstantiation, that the bread and wine are literally and physically transformed body, soul, and divinity into Jesus Christ and therefore is to be worshipped, that indeed they commit the sin of idolatry. And for both these reasons, our fathers strictly warned against him. We sought to defend our catechism with all faithful confessional reformed churches against those formerly confessional churches which are embarrassed by these words. Embarrassed. They think they went too far and for different reasons side with those who say that the errors of Roman Catholicism are not as bad as all that. However, if they are upset or embarrassed by their forefather in the faith's confession in this catechism by Zacharias or Sinus, its author, how much more would they be appalled by the actual words of his commentary? Zacharias or Sinus' commentary on his catechism, which he wrote, says this, the mass is repugnant to the true word of God because it establishes the idolatrous worship of Christ in bread. As we have already shown, the papists restrict or bind the worship of Christ to a thing to which Christ has not restricted it by any express command. And in this way, they declare themselves idolaters, no less than if 
they were to worship Christ at a wall or if they were to adore him falling down before a pillar. From what has now been said, it is evident that the Mass is an idol formed by Antichrist. Out of the various accursed errors and blasphemies and submitted in the place of the Lord's Supper, which by his reason is properly and necessarily abolished. And we saw how last time, indeed, that label of Antichrist is most fitting in John's epistle, 1 John. The word Antichrist denotes one who replaces Christ and is opposed to Christ. And in 1 John 2, verse 8, it is used both broadly of anyone who would hold such a position and narrowly to describe one figure. 1 John chapter 2, verse 8. Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Now, if you agreed with the teaching from the last sermon, you will conclude there can be no real disagreement that surely Roman Catholicism and those who teach it, those who practice it, would fall under the category of antichrists, broadly considered. In this place of the true Christ, they worship a false Christ. However, the disagreement may still be, what therefore do we make of the prediction in 1 John 2, verse 8, of one antichrist in the singular who will come in the last age of the world in order to be, as it were, the leader of the false church? Do we therefore hold that the Roman Catholic Pope is the Antichrist? Well, for myself, I would contend very strongly that this is the teaching of the Word of God. It is not today a most popular position, but as I hope to show you, it is one that deserves serious attention and consideration if you've never done so in the past. Indeed, Today, at a time when many Reformed pulpits do not speak about the hard questions of prophecy and eschatology, it may at least open the door to many fruitful discussions and studies of your own as I seek to lay forth, as I understand the teaching of the Word of God on this vital matter. With the Lord's help, you'll consider the Papal Antichrist. The Papal Antichrist. I wish to show the historical testimony first, the historical testimony, second, the biblical teaching, and third, some practical consequences. So the historical testimony, some biblical teaching, and practical consequence. Now, unfortunately, given the nature of the subject, we're going to have to listen carefully to a bit of a history lesson, boys and girls. I'm sure you study history in school, don't you? And you know what? The Bible is also a book of history. It's not just about nice stories. It's about history. If you read the Bible, it's supposed to ground you in understanding where you stand in the great working and unfolding of redemptive history. God saving his people. I hope you listen, boys and girls, because what we're going to hear is how it was that the Pope came into existence. Well, you might know that from the earliest days of Christianity, after 
the coming of Christ and his death, burial, and ascension, Christianity was a persecuted religion. The Roman Empire persecuted Christians. They killed most of the apostles. They killed many of the godly ministers, many of the godly witnesses, even from the first days of the New Covenant era. This didn't stop either. The pagans, the worshipers of false gods within the Roman Empire, they hated Christians. They accused them of holding to very disgusting practices, which were lies. So they accused them of being idolaters and atheists, which were also lies. They would feed Christians to lions. They would light them up as candles. Can you believe that, children? Light them as giant candles for birthday parties of the Caesars. If you read many of the early church uh, figures, like the apologists like Justin Martyr or Tertullian, they're often trying to defend themselves against these unjust accusations from the people who are persecuting them. This continues on and on for centuries until such time as an emperor came along by the name of Constantine. Constantine. Constantine, you see, was the first emperor to profess faith in Christianity, in, in Christ. And whatever we would make of Constantine, we certainly should recognize that in three uh, 311, he passed the Edict of Milan, which all it did was it simply made Christianity legal. You could no longer be persecuted for being a Christian. In the aftermath of that, 325, you have the Council of Nicaea. The church comes out of hiding from persecution. They actually have the Roman emperor lead them in a council that, where they codify some important doctrines concerning the Trinity. Now, when you think about that period from persecution to being legal and codified in the Roman Empire as a lawful religion, what you need to understand is there's a shift, a shift. The early church, you read in the book of Acts, in the epistles, it recognized an equality of every minister of the gospel. All were uh, sharing a like authority as ministers, as elders, who had the same teaching authority, the same governing authority in all the different congregations. Sometimes they're called bishops or overseers. Sometimes they're called presbyters or elders, but the words are used interchangeably. Yet what you see is that in those early days of the persecution church, there begins to be a shift. One minister above all others in a local area begins to call himself bishop. And those under him begin to call themselves presbyters. What's starting to happen? Hierarchy. Departure from the teaching of the word of God. Because when you're being persecuted, you need leadership. When you're running away from authorities, when you're running um, for your life, sometimes you just need someone to take charge. And so it was in the Christian community, the bishops began to be more and more powerful. And then after there's legalization of Christianity it actually becomes more and more this way. What began as maybe a small departure from the word of God becomes a lot more dramatic. So what happened after the reign of the Christian emperors, particularly as it's recognized by the, the Christian emperor Justinian in the year 527 to 565 when he reigned, he recognizes five patriarchs, five patriarchs. These are sort of uh, really powerful bishops 
in certain cities. Now, those cities were Rome, Constantinople in Turkey, what we call today Turkey, Alexandria in Egypt, Antioch, and Jerusalem. And different reasons why those were chosen, but usually in connection with some claim to an apostle. There would be one pastor, one bishop, who would be elevated among all others, who he would kind of call the shots for all the churches within his area of jurisdiction. And the Christian emperors, they recognized this, they encouraged this. But we have to recognize, of course, it's a further departure from the word of God. And, and things, you see, became more confused when there are these Muslim invasions among many of these cities. Basically, all of them are overrun with Muslims in the years 638 to 640. So that basically Rome and Constantinople are alone possessing real power and influence. All the rest have only a figurative position. Now, would you want to guess, boys and girls, what was the Greek name for patriarch? What do you think the Greek name for patriarch or father was? It was Papa. Papa. And you see, that was the beginning of the popes. But really, there, remember, there was really just two main figures who might claim that name at this point, one in Rome and one in Constantinople, basically Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity. And what happens in 476 is something also dramatic. The Roman Empire falls. Barbarians rush into the great city of Rome, the great empire that once had this city as the pinnacle of everything. It is now invaded, and it's now occupied by these foreign hordes. And you can read about uh, the great church father Augustine, how he lamented this, how he saw it as the judgment of God for their sins. But you need to understand what a huge impact this was. There had just been a great trauma as the empire comes crashing down. People are looking for leadership. And what remains? Well, there's one great bishop on the whole western side of the church. And he is the bishop of Rome. Things got further confused when in 1054 there's a great split. Both sides of the church condemn one another as heretics over a disagreement about the Trinity. Basically, the philoclea cause is excluded by one and included by the other. They declare themselves heretics. It's a complicated issue we can talk about sometime. But the consequences in all Western Christianity, there's now a con further consolidation of power, not only in terms of ecclesiastical authority, but also political in the hands of the Roman bishop. This further becomes heightened where the Constantinople completely falls under Roman invasion in 1453. I want to give you a bit of a taste for how it was that they had gone so far from the biblical teaching. Here are a couple ways in which the popes describe themselves. So Pope Martin V wrote in the dispatches, which he furnished as an ambassador to Constantinople, the most holy and most happy, who is the arbiter of heaven and the Lord of the earth, the successor of St. Peter, the anointed of the Lord, that is the Christ of the Lord, the master of the universe, the father of kings, the light of the world, all describing the Pope. Listen as well to the words that were spoken whenever he was coronated. You see, 
uh, now that you have the Roman Empire fallen, what you start to see is that they're starting to treat this man not only as a pastor, as a minister, however important, but also as a kind of emperor. He has three crowns for many years that he wears. And as he's crowned with these three crowns, the deacon who performs this says, receive this tiara embellished with three crowns and never forget that you are the father of princes and kings, the supreme judge of the universe and the earth, vicar, that is, physical representative of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Another source speaks in this way where a contemporary says, to make war against the Pope is to make war against God, seeing the Pope is God, and God is the Pope. Quoted from Morai's history. Oh, we could go on. But this would be the era in which you have colossal persecution against those who would be speaking out against the Pope's errors. Maybe a Christian begins to say, I'm against the worship of Mary. I'm against the worship of bread and the mass. I'm against the teaching of purgatory. I'm against this and I'm against that. What do you find is that every movement that is raised up by a godly minister to speak such things is promptly the target of persecution by those answering to his spiritual authority within the church and by his um, political authority among the different kings of Europe. So you have the Waldensians of Italy, many thousands massacred. You have the, um, the Hussites in Hungary, many thousands massacred. You have the Lollards in Great Britain, all pre-Reformation figures that stood, in many cases, for a much more pure understanding of the gospel and the church and the word of God. And many, many, many are killed. So what happens? Well, what you start to see is that there is an astonishing change in Europe. A man named Martin Luther, maybe children have heard of Martin Luther. He was a monk in the Roman Catholic Church, and he began to actually stand firmly for the gospel, began to stand firmly for the teaching of the word of God. In 1517, he stands against the heirs of Roman Catholicism and the Reformation is born for the rest of the 16th century. In the 17th century, the Reformation is ascendant. Whole nations are, that were brought captive under the bondage of the Pope are liberated as the preaching of the word and the great reformations are accomplished, but yet through much persecution and bloodshed. Our ancestors in Europe, in Holland, and in uh, Scotland, and England, under different Roman Catholic leaders, paid for their liberty and for the orthodoxy and purity of the church with their shed blood. And so it continues also today, of course, not commanding the kind of visible influence we see in the past, and yet... The Roman Catholic Church, with its head, the Pope, remains. I wish to now quote from two sources of the official Roman Catholic Church teaching. The First Vatican Council, which convened in 1886, so not that long ago, is actually more recent than the founding of the FRC in 1834. In any case, this is a much more recent articulation of their position. So let's listen to a, 
at least a few words of what it says about the supremacy of the Pope. It says, according to the testimony of the gospel, the primacy of jurisdiction over the universal church of God was immediately and directly promised and given to blessed Peter, the apostle of Christ the Lord. So you remember these patriarchs, they initially got their clout by claiming to be connected to an apostle, while Rome, the bishop of Rome, claimed originally he was founded by the apostle Peter. So the argument goes, but more on that later. Whensoever succeeds to the Peter is this sea, does by the institution of Christ himself obtain the primacy of Peter over the whole church. The Roman church possesses a superiority of ordinary power over all other churches, and that this power of jurisdiction of the Roman pontiff, which is truly Episcopal, is immediate to which all in whatever right and dignity, both pastors and faithful, both individually and collectively, are bound by their duty of hierarchical subordination and true obedience to submit not only in matters which belong to faith and morals, but also in those that appertain to discipline and government of the church throughout the world, so that the church of Christ may be one flock under one supreme pastor through the preservation of unity, both of communion and possession, of the same faith of the Roman pontiff. Go on, but basically what you see is that so complete was the authority of the Pope that during the time of the Reformation, as the Reformed kings and queens took over in Great Britain, there was actually uh, a statement from the Pope to all faithful Roman Catholics that anyone who killed the, the Protestant monarch would be exempt from obedience to that monarch and would indeed receive rewards from the Roman Catholic Church on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see how they command both political as well as spiritual authority. Well, even that was a fair long ago, back in the 1800s, but here's something more recent. The Second Vatican Council, the Second Vatican Council, where I'm not going to read it extensively, but in Chapter 3, uh, Article 3 of the Roman Catholic uh, Church Catechism, which was commissioned and written in the aftermath of Vatican II, it is very clear in reaffirming what the previous Vatican Council had said, as well as doubling down on the principle of infallibility, namely that the Roman Catholic um, Pope cannot make mistakes, where he sits in his throne in Rome and pronounces something on faith or morals. So I'll read a couple things from the Roman Catholic Catechism, just so you can get a sense of what it says. The Roman Pontiff and the bishops are authentic teachers. It is teachers endowed with the authority of Christ who preach the faith to the people, entrusted to them the, the faith to be believed and put into practice. Well, that sounds a lot less scary, but you need to understand. It's all it is is saying we're reaffirming what has already been said. The ordinary and universal magisterium of the pope and the bishops in communion with him teach the faithful of the truth to believe the charity to practice and the beatitude to hope for. In other words, that you have to submit to their teaching, whether in faith, morals, or practice. Goes on, the supreme decree of participation in the authority of, the, of Christ is ensured by the is ensured by the charism of infallibility. This infallibility extends as far as does the deposit of divine revelation. So, in other words, as far as Scripture goes, they can interpret it perfectly or in any other way, whether through their tradition or through direct revelation. 
It also extends to all those elements of doctrine, including morals, without which the saving truths of faith cannot be preserved, explained, or observed. Now, I want to just briefly give a response to this. The uh, catechism is going to shortly bring us to a discussion of the keys committed to Peter in, for, in Matthew 16. So we're going to have a whole sermon on that, and we will consider in its place how it is that the Roman Catholics completely mutilate that portion of Scripture to twist it into something it was not. But for right now, I just want to briefly read two portions of Scripture which any child can read and understand that everything that is built up over the years in Roman Catholicism is false. First is found in 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Would you turn there? There we read how the words from Peter himself. Does Peter claim to be the head of the church, the vicar of Christ, the one that everyone else needs to submit to as supreme? Well, what he says in 1 Peter 5, verse 1, The elders which are among you I exhort, who also am an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. You continue to read on. He gives very godly instructions, but he does so lowering himself to just another pastor, another elder, another servant of the Lord. So that itself would completely refute the position. But one other, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, you have a striking episode in which Peter is rebuked and receives rebuke and correction from the apostle Paul in Galatians 2, verse 11, regarding his separation from the brethren who were Gentiles. There we read, But when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face, because he was to be blamed. For before that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles. And when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them that they were of the circumcision. And the other Jews, dismembering likewise with him, insomuch that Barnabas also was carried away, with their dissimulation. These things are sufficient to prove the Pope, that Peter did not claim to be the Pope, he did not claim to be infallible, did not claim to be the superior of Paul or any other minister. He was another minister, prone to mistakes like every minister. So this is sufficient to prove that the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is false. But our fathers went further. They didn't just say it's false. Because there are some errors, brothers and sisters, that seem to have a peculiar power about them. I think you'll agree. There's a garden variety kind of heresy that comes along every year and then it's gone. But there are also great powers of darkness that seem to prevail against long tides of history that consume millions and millions of souls. And so it was that the Westminster theologians who crafted the Westminster Confession of Faith in the 1700s, wrote in the Westminster Confession of Faith, there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any sense be head thereof, but is that Antichrist, that man of sin, and son of perdition that exalteth himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. It's interesting as well that in the 1700s, uh, you also have the writing of well, uh, The Christian's Reasonable Service by Wilhelmus of Brockel, who is one of the great uh, Reformed theologians in Holland. His work, translated by Reformed Heritage Books, is one of the great uh, works of systematic theology. 
used even today. And in the Christian's Reasonable Service, Wilhelmus Abraco addresses the question, and I won't read the whole uh, essay he writes, but he addresses the question, who is the Antichrist? And he writes in the year seven, 1700, answer with all Protestants, with all Protestants, we reply, the Pope of Rome. You see, this wasn't a marginal idea. It wasn't a weird idea. It wasn't like a really minority thing. Listen to Martin Luther. Listen to John Calvin. Listen to the Puritans. Listen to all the ministers of the gospel right up into the 1800s, including the founder of the FRC in Holland. Um, you find that even in his case, Hendrik de Kock affirmed this same teaching. Let me give you a quote from Charles Spurgeon, who's all the way in the later 1800s, who writes, it is the bounden duty of every Christian to pray against Antichrist and what, and as to, sorry, and as to what Antichrist is, no sane man ought to raise a question. If it be not the popery in the Roman, in the Church of Rome, there is nothing in the world that can be called by that name. If there were to be issued a hue and cry for Antichrist, we should certainly take up this church on suspicion and it would certainly not be let loose again, for it is so exactly answers the description. Popery is contrary to Christ's gospel and is the Antichrist, and we ought to pray against it. So that's all history. It's all history, and surely it's interesting history. It's the sort of thing that we sit back and say, well, that's, that's something to think about, I suppose. But ultimately, we are Protestants. We answer not to tradition, even if it was a popular position, even if it was in the Westminster Confession. It's not our confessional standard anyway, but even if it were our confessional standard, it wouldn't be the case that we would believe it just because it was in the confession unless it could be certainly proven from the word of God. And I wish to briefly prove to you that it is the certain teaching of the word of God as we look at just two passages. The first will be Daniel 7, which we read, and as we're turning there, I just wish to explain that really, if you want to study this matter, there's really three stools of the argument our fathers used. The three stools, the three legs of the stool, I should say, are on the one hand, Daniel 7, on the second hand, 2 Thessalonians 2, on the third hand, the whole book of Revelation. Well, I'm not going to be touching the book of Revelation this afternoon. That would be a huge topic. So maybe many years in the future, if I've done more study, I'll, I'll try to assess their claims about the book of Revelation. But I think if you understand Daniel 7 and 2 Thessalonians 2, according to this interpretation, you'll at least have a lot of uh, fodder for your own study in the book of Revelation as you see references and allusions to Daniel 7 and 2 Thessalonians 2 in the book of Revelation. Now, the Matthew Poole, the Puritan commentator, has a nice little summary of the context of Daniel 7 in case you were unsure of what is going on. You have uh, Daniel as he's there in captivity and this, the great transfer of power from uh, Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar has taken place and Daniel is remaining firm. As we read in verse 1, and Matthew Poole writes, These visions of Daniel were sent and recorded by him in writing for the benefit of the church to rectify their mistake, for they thought all things would succeed prosperously after they returned out of their captivity they should find a world of troubles in many generations following, seeing that the four great monarchies, which he called beasts, uh, there was but one past, and they should find three more yet to come. 
Indeed, these great beasts that come out of the ocean, you've heard about them, children, during the scripture reading. The first one's a great big lion with wings that walks like a man. The second one is this bear that's fearsome and is told that it will devour. And the third is a leopard that has the four heads and it has dominion. And the fourth is one that seems to defy description. More on that in a moment. But it's a very standard, normal interpretation to say that these correspond, as Matthew Poole says, to the four great kingdoms or empires that rise up between the time of uh, Daniel and the time of Christ. This is the, the basic understanding. And it corresponds very well with the vision in uh, Daniel 2, if you're interested, with the great big statue and the different parts of it lining up with uh, the beasts here, and you can compare those passages. But I simply want to point to a few parts about this fourth beast, which the normal interpretation, very standard interpretation, is this is the Roman Empire. Look at Daniel 7 and verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceeding, and had great iron teeth that devoured and break in pieces, and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up at, by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking of great things." So this was the most terrifying of all the beasts Daniel saw. And then he saw this glorious picture of God the Father as the Ancient of Days with his white hair upon the great throne, surrounded by angels. Before him comes the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his uh, exalted glory as the victor of the people of God and the Savior of them. And what you see is that judgment is visited upon all of these beasts. And so you see in verse 11, I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their, time, their lives were prolonged for a season and time. Now, if that isn't completely clear to you, you're not alone. What is this? terrible beast that seems to defy description and there's ten horns that come out of it all of a sudden from this horn comes a little horn at the top of the head that has eyes and it takes three of the horns to itself what does that mean what could this mean well you read in the same chapter daniel 7 verse 23 thus he said the fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth so it will be rome in the order of chronology which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. No one can dispute. Rome was the greatest of empires, the most powerful, the most wealthy, the most, um, most long-lasting of these sorts. Verse 24, And the ten horns out of this kingdom were ten kings that shall arise, and Another shall arise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings, and he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. 
and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of the time. A lot could be said there. But you see how there's a picture beginning to emerge. Its opposition is particularly to the saints, to the holy ones of the Lord, to believers. You see how it exalts himself, speaking great things in pride. And you see how it particularly changes times and laws, begins to govern the way people spend time, begins to govern how they can behave, particularly as it concerns worship. And you notice that it's also... Uh, the case that it rains for times, time, and a dividing of time, which corresponds to basically uh, a description of uh, two and a half years, or 1,260 uh, days, or 42 months, which, if you would consult how those numbers are used in the book of Revelation, you'll certainly have an interesting study. But in any case, the, the argument is, well, what is happening? Well, if you compare it, really, with the, the statue in Daniel 2, you see that these ten horns really correspond to the toes in the great statue that is standing when the great uh, representation of Christ, the, the, the rock without hand, smashes the whole statue. And so uh, many commentators have argued the most rational understanding is that after the Roman Empire falls, what you have is that their power and their influence passes on to all the territories that were formerly under their domain. And so rather than say, well, what kingdom is which? It's just a number that includes all the kings that succeeded Rome. So John Gill, the commentator, I think probably accurately says the kingdoms of France, Spain, Portugal, Germany, Great Britain, Sardia, Denmark, the two Sicilies, Swedenland, Prussia, Poland. If those aren't correct, then certainly others could be substituted in place, basically the kingdoms of Europe. Now, Dr. Gill also has a theory that he, I will now read from his commentator, commentary about the little horn. Now, listen to this in light of the history that we recounted in the first point of this sermon. Now, to the Roman Antichrist, everything here answers, that is, the little horn. He is the horn, possessing of power, strength, and authority, and dominion, of which the horn is an emblem, a little one which rose from small beginnings and came to his ecclesiastical power from a common pastor or bishop, to be a metropolitan of Italy and then universal bishop, to his secular power, which at first was very small, and since increased, and yet in comparison of other horns or kingdoms, but little, though being allowed to exercise a power within others, uh, is or at least has been very formidable. This came up among the other horns, where the northern barbarous nations broke into the empires and set up ten kingdoms in it. This little horn sprung up among them, and while they were still forming kingdoms for themselves, he was contriving one for himself." And Dr. Gill, in his commentary, which you can find online, he supplies a number of interpretations from the early church fathers that indicate that this was their expectation based upon Daniel 7, the book of Revelation, and 2 Thessalonians 2, that the Roman Empire was in view, that it would one day expire, and then the Antichrist would arise from the ruins of the Roman Empire. So Irenaeus, the early church father, says, John, the disciple of the Lord in the Revelation hath yet more manifestly signified of the last time and of those ten kings in it, among whom the empire that now reigns, the Roman Empire, shall be divided. And the early um, church father Jerome says that uh, 
the common sense among all ecclesiastical writers, quote, that when the Roman Empire is destroyed, there shall be 10 kings who shall divide it among them, and the 11th shall rise, a little king who shall conquer three of the 10 kings, and having slain them, the other seven shall submit their necks to the conqueror. Well, there's one leg of the stool. And if you would try to find what are the other alternatives that we could have? Well, they basically boil down to inadequate theories. One interpretation is this isn't actually the Roman Empire, but the Syrian Empire. And this is a very minority view, although some of the reformers held it. And it really doesn't fit with the sweep of history or the parallel passage in Daniel 2. What's the other interpretation? Well, the argument would be that the uh, arising of this figure, this antichrist figure, may yet be future, may yet be future, which I, I put to you again does not seem to make sense if what we're talking about is the collapse of the Roman Empire. It's there that this uh, revelation of the Antichrist seems to emerge in history. So that's one leg of the stool. The second is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And as you turn there, I just want to refer you to the words of John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, where he says, To some we seem slanderous and petulant when we call the Roman pontiff Antichrist. But those who think so perceive not that they are bringing a charge of intemperance against Paul, after whom we speak, nay, in whose very words we speak. Now, uh, his basic argument is the one I'm going to lay out for you now, that these things really only fit with the Pope of Rome. But as Calvin argues, and this is a common interpretation among our fathers, the argument is that this prophecy fits very well with Daniel 7. You read the two of them together, and the figure that's described is, is the same figure, basically. And other uh, interpretations we will examine uh, after we summarize what I believe is the correct interpretation. Now, I would have you read the whole thing. I will not uh, do that again now. But I want to point out certain things about 2 Thessalonians verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 12. They are given in the context of correct instruction about eschatology. There are some people who thought that the coming of the Lord would be immediate, and so the apostle says not so, that this figure must come first. And in order to organize these things logically, I think it's important to note, he says this is already at work, this figure, in verse 7. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he taketh out of the way. So the first part where he says, this is already working, where there is a mystery of godliness that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, or 1 Timothy 3. Now this is the mystery of iniquity, a terrible mystery, a terrible truth about a satanic plot to destroy true Christianity. He says it's already at work. Already mistakes are being made. Already false doctrine is creeping in. And he's saying this is already the case to the church right now. He warns them. And this is a pretty clear indication that you can't make this entirely future. Whatever he's talking about, it's already beginning in the times in which he ministered. Next thing I would notice is he speaks of the temple of God. The temple of God in verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there be a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, 
who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, the normal use of this phrase, the temple of God, in the epistles of Paul is the church. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16, he says, And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. And many other examples could be given. A normal description of the church. And so the argument would be, well, maybe this is a future temple that's being going to be rebuilt in the future. Well, you know, that doesn't make sense if it's already at work in the time in which he's speaking, because the temple was destroyed for many years after this epistle was written. You notice as well, he's called the son of perdition. Now, the only other case where that is used is in reference to the apostate uh, Judas in uh, John 17, verse 12, where he prays, Christ prays unto his father and says that um, those thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition. And the scripture might be fulfilled. The only other use of that word is to describe a terrible apostate who was a Christian, was a minister of God, and yet betrayed Christ. So the evidence thus far would be strongly it's an apostate Christian minister claiming unique authority in the church. You notice that's also after a terrible apostasy or falling away in verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, that is the return of Christ, except there come a falling away first, and that son of man be revealed, the son of perdition. Now, if you're a Protestant, you believe that a great apostasy happened. You believe it was apostasy when people replaced the Lord's Supper with the Mass. You believe it was apostasy when people replaced justification by faith alone with justification by works. You believe it was apostasy when the mediator Mary was put in the place of Christ, when purgatory was put as a true doctrine, when indeed the Pope took the role of the head and vicar of Christ. It was apostasy. And what greater apostasy could there be? There are people who interpret this and say, wow, someday it's actually going to get really bad. Can you believe it? There will actually be a man sitting in the church claiming to be God, claiming to be the representative of Christ. He will lead people astray, and this will be the climax of a terrible apostasy. My friend, if you just have a little bit of understanding of history, you know that's already happened. This is past. Now, the uh, key part of interpretation is, what is the restrainer? What is the thing that is restraining this from happening? You look at verses 6 and 7. I'm going to read from the New King James just to give you a little sense of how that translates it. Now you know uh, what is restraining that he might be revealed in his own time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now the uh, the standard interpretation of that by the church fathers and by the Puritans and by the Westminster divines was that that restrainer is the Roman Empire. Why did they say that? Because you look at the picture of this figure here and you look at the picture in uh, Daniel 7 and it's the Roman Empire and its collapse which restrains its manifestation. It's not just an arbitrary thing that was thought up, no. It's grounded on comparing scripture with scripture. 
And so in this way, uh, it, it holds up. What's the other interpretation? Some people have argued that it must be the Holy Spirit who is restraining the Antichrist, and then someday when things get really bad, he will, he will surface, and we will know him because he looks like this. Well, that's not a normal way of describing the Holy Spirit, so it's not particularly persuasive. We just need to notice in, in brief that he is an agent of great evil. He corresponds to everything that we spoke about in the first point. Think about the terrible evil and wickedness that is revealed here in his pride. Verse 5, he says, um, excuse me, Second Thessalonians 2, verse 5. Remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things, and how ye that withholdeth, and, how, and now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. I think I'm thinking of verse 4, actually. Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God. Exalted above everything that's called God. Claiming himself to be supreme over every other religious practice. Or that is worship, so that he is as God, sitting in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Who else claims for himself the title Holy Father? Who else can claim that he can bind the conscience, that he can forgive sins, that he can open purgatory, that he is more authoritative than anyone else? This is the pride of the Antichrist. And the idolatry is very clear in verse, four, verse 9. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. What you see here is that there are more miracles ascribed to this false religion than any other. There is a picture of Mary and it's weeping. There is a Roman Catholic heretic and he has stigmata, the sign of crucifixion on his hands. There is someone who saw a vision of an angel of light and on and on. Here is a miracle that was found by going to a pilgrimage. Here is something else that happened and another thing that happened. And, and you see that this religion is founded upon superstition, witchcraft, and blasphemy. But it's not just... Uh, Foolishness. It's not just illusions. It's the power of the devil. The devil can appear as an angel of light. And so you see that is what is happening here. We will simply point out that in, um, in verse 8, you also speak of its gradual and yet sudden destruction. Verse 8. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth shall consume, which denotes an ongoing action as the spirit of his mouth, the word of God, as the Holy Spirit blesses it, gradually brings his power to nothing. What do we think of? We think of Martin Luther. We think of the Puritans. We think of the Reformers, faithful ministers who resisted Antichrist and his errors that brought him from being the high echelon of power in the world to much more of a muted and Disabled threat, comparatively speaking, though yet still dangerous. But there is also a sudden destruction that is also spoken of there in verse uh, 8. Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. And we'll not um, get into details on that, but if you compare that with what Christ does in Daniel 7, I think you'll come to some definite conclusions about what this is referring to. 
And basically your options are that Christ will come at the very end of history to destroy Antichrist, or there's a very remarkable work of the Lord and the Holy Spirit sending a great revival that will destroy him. Those are the two interpretations, and I'll leave you to uh, sort that out on your own time. It's been a long sermon, but I just wanted to give some practical consequences of this. It's not just a scholarly exercise. I believe this is the faithful teaching of the Word of God, and there's a few consequences that flow from this. One is, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. The reality is there's a great pressure in the world to say that this is not so bad, this is not so wrong, that they are just other Christians, that this is something we can overlook, we can join hands, we can sing kumbaya, let me tell you something, that there is a spiritual power at work with this entity. If you talk to those who've been under its power, you know what spiritual damage can come from exposure to this stuff. How it is they don't trust the word of God. How it is they don't believe they can think for themselves. How it is they need an infallible interpreter. How really they say it's all up to your interpretation. We can't know anything for certain or else they know one thing. They have to believe the Pope. The reality is that it also has political ambitions. You think of President Biden, you think of Justin Trudeau. They are members of good standing in this church. You think of others who harbor ill will against Christianity. In one way or another, you often find that they are connected to this entity. And where you find people who are elevating themselves as leaders of nationalist or patriotic or conservative movements, invariably you find figures who cooperate and support one another who are part of this religious persuasion. And I would just put to you that that is not a neutral thing. That's not an indifferent thing. It ought to be registered with us. And we ought to examine very carefully who it is that we are getting in bed with. That's one consequence. The other, I would just simply say, is pray. Pray. The reality is we need to pray much for the souls that are in bondage unto this error. You notice how it's described in, um, in verse 10 and following. And with all deceivableness and unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for that this cause God shall send them with strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. The reality is it's a peculiar judgment of God that the Antichrist reigns, that he exists even on our shores, that he has dominance and is even the head of the largest religion in the world. It is a sign of foreboding that he seeks to synchronize all religions together. A little bit of LGBT, a little bit of crossing the floor to the Muslims, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you kneel and kiss the ring. What is happening? Well, the trajectory over all of history is that Rome doesn't move. It seeks to absorb, it seeks to change with the times as much as possible, but their doctrine as you read it, is just the same as it ever was. And given half the opportunity, it would be used to persecute the church of God yet again if that should be what the Lord would deliver us to. And as we speak of prayer, let me just close with what Charles Spurgeon said in his quotation. Popery is contrary to Christ's gospel and is 
The Antichrist, and we ought to pray against it. It should be the daily prayer of every believer that Antichrist might be hurled like a millstone into the flood and for Christ because it wounds Christ, because it robs Christ of his glory, because it puts sacramental efficacy in the place of his atonement and lifts up a piece of bread into the place of the Savior and a few drops of water into the place of the Holy Ghost and puts a mere fallible man like ourselves up as the vicar of Christ on earth. If we pray against it, because it is against him, we shall love the persons, though we hate our errors. We shall love their souls, though we loathe and detest their dogmas. And so the breath of our prayers will be sweetened because we turn our faces towards Christ when we pray. Amen.